Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Kafrani is a trauma surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital. Chad and Amir caught up with him after he recently gave a phenomenal talk at the Canadian Surgical Forum in Vancouver earlier this year. Dr. Kafrani talked about his work in Lebanon after the explosion in 2020, his research on intraoperative adverse events, and ultimately on his work on surgeons as second victims. This episode is a clarion call for surgeons everywhere to develop these support systems for each other. Dr. Kafarani, thank you so much for having us on the Cold Steel, uh, for, for joining us rather on the Cold Steel podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Uh, we know how busy you are and uh, we're just absolutely delighted to have you on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you did your training? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I, uh, I was actually born on the city on the eastern Mediterranean coast in Lebanon. It's a very old city, maybe four or 5,000 years old, called Sidon. I did go then to undergraduate and medical school at the American University of Beirut, did my internship at the Brigham and Women in Boston, my residency at Tufts also in Boston, and then my fellowship in trauma and acute care surgery at the Mass General Hospital all in Boston. How far is where you grew up from from, from Beirut? So <laughs> the whole country is is so small. When, you know, I didn't realize that growing up, but the whole country is the size of Rhode Island. So Sidon is about an hour or even 45 minutes south of Beirut, both on the coast. I mean, clearly that has had a, a big impact, I think, growing up in Lebanon. And, and uh, clearly, you know, I think... He, that's something that that matters to you a lot, both from and that's clear from the work that you do with IMGs, supporting folks who, who are coming to, to the U.S. for their training and for research. You know, you can see that with the way that you mentor IMGs, and and you know, even more broadly and and directly with the work that you've done, for example, after the earthquake in Lebanon. Can you can you tell me a little bit about like what impact that? I mean, sometimes it's a, it's difficult to disentangle these things. But what do you, what do you think growing up in Lebanon did for you in terms of your worldview and how you approach surgery and maybe life in general? Wow, that, that's a that's a really really deep question. I don't think anybody has asked me this question before. Um, but if I really have to drill it down to, to the most important, I think growing in Lebanon taught me an important thing from a worldview perspective. I grew up on the on the receiving end of the judgmental eye of, of, of people. Let's put it this way. And, and it taught me that there are always two sides to every story. The goodness is everywhere in the world. And you can only come close to deep understanding is when you keep your mind open to to others and, and listen to the others and feel what they experienced the way they experienced it. So I, I think it taught me that that also nothing justifies war. I'm, I'm very openly anti-war. I don't think anything justifies war, no matter what pretext it comes under. Um, from a career point of view, I think growing in, in Lebanon really directed me unconsciously. I didn't realize it towards surgery and then towards trauma surgery, and eventually to volunteer some of my time with Médecins Sans Frontières or Doctors Without Borders to go back to conflict area zones where, you know, it's it, it's kind of like, um, I never thought about it psychologically, but that's how I, I grew up, I you know, with the burden of war and trauma around me. So somehow I found a way to come back to that. Uh, I bet you a psychologist will have a lot to say about it. So um, from the, you know, you mentioned the, it's just uh, the, the earthquake. It wasn't an earthquake. It was like an, an urban explosion, unfortunate, in Beirut in, in 2020. And I, uh, yeah, it was a devastating thing. Happy to talk about it if you want me to. Yeah, sorry, I, I totally misspoke. We all saw these videos and, and uh, you know, really devastating 
pictures that came out from the aftermath of that. What was that experience like going to uh, Lebanon to help deal with the after effects of that? Yeah, no, it it it's, it was like like you said, it was an explosion at the port of Beirut. It's in the downtown of the city, so not in a remote area. Pretty much in a, one of the most vibrant areas of the city. Took the lives of hundreds, probably ruined the lives of thousands, destroyed the, the, the last remaining hope of a country that I love, but a country that unfortunately has been struggling with many issues for years. So I was here in the U.S. in Boston when that happened. I felt completely um, helpless. I, I did end up going shortly after to help at the American University of Beirut. But to be honest, I, I went there. It was mostly for me. They, they had everything under control, the surgeons there, the physicians, the ED physicians, the nurses, they just had everything under control. And I, I didn't feel like I really um, contributed much from a clinical point of view. But I, you know, so when I came back, I, I wanted the story of the victims heard. So I coordinated a, a multi-center study um, across all the major hospitals of Beirut to collect the data on the victims of the explosion, to collect data on their injuries, how their injuries were managed, and the eventual outcome of those injuries. And, uh, and this, this study was published at the Annals of Surgery. And uh, if anybody emails me, I'm more than happy to, to share the PDF of it. It just told the story of the victims, really. Ironically, we called it BAS study. It was like an abbreviation of the Beirut, uh, I can't even remember. But uh, the point is, we called it Bas, and it's an ironic because Bas in the Lebanese dialect means enough, which uh, probably was the feeling of many people after the explosion. You know, I have to say, and maybe I'm stepping out of the bounds here, but um, you know, like a lot, a lot of Western media necessarily has the same attention to things that happen, disasters that happen in. The Middle East, or you know, outside of North America or Europe, and and uh, maybe we'll get some hate mail for for me saying this, but I think the point that I'm trying to make is that I think it takes some courage and uh, also some integrity to actually go and highlight some a, a disaster like that um, happening in the Middle East that maybe doesn't necessarily get the same kind of media coverage that other mass casualty events would have in other places. Um, did you at all feel, uh, what's the word, reluctant or shy or like, was it hard for you to, to like, and you know, it got published in Annals of Surgery. Um, so clearly you were able to, to bring that to a very high place in terms of where the surgical world works. But what was that experience like of trying to highlight something, a, a, a mass casualty event in, in Lebanon? Yeah, that's a really good question, Amir, and there's a lot of insight in what you said. I mean, my experience has been, and I'm pretty sure in Canada is the same like in the U.S., a lot of sympathy, a lot of empathy, a lot of people can identify with disasters when they happen, how it impacts normal people. So my experience from a, a, the reaction of people around me was mostly very sympathetic and very positive and, and very... Uh, understanding of what's going on, how people of, you know, from Lebanon would feel then, or for any disaster anywhere in the world, for that matter. So my experience has has nothing been been but positive from an from uh, a personal experience. Uh, and the study was also, as as you said, was very well received and and was published in in a good place. But the point you, you're aiming, you're pointing at, is, is really important. I think. It's always, and I'm not a, a, you know, a public policy kind of person. I'm not in politics. I, I will fail at it miserably if I do. But one thing that always struck me in media, um, whether it's anywhere in the world, the media anywhere, not only like here, is the ability of the media to either humanize something or completely dehumanize something could be the same experience. What I mean by that, you know, something happens and, and it's a natural tendency for people. Something happens uh, far away from you, the news becomes, you know, there is something bad that happens, a hundred people died. 
But then if that same something happened right next to you, you don't say 100 people died. You start bringing the human story of each one of those 100 and then their family and how they're going through. And and that actually is important to, to humanize. And I wish, you know, we, we, we can do a better job in humanizing, you know, human suffering when it happens to others um, rather than just it happened so far from me. It's just a number on a little kind of banner that comes underneath in the news. So that's like my wish from media. They can humanize. Think when, when 100 people die, remember, everybody, every one of them had a name. Many of them had mothers, fathers, spouses, kids. And, and, and so it's a misery for 100 people just like anywhere else. Yeah, I think I think that's very well said, and that's uh, certainly a tall order. <laughs> You're right. So I think we should all, all think like that. I, I want to piggyback off something you, you mentioned, you know, in terms of the environment with which you've ended up in and, and the work that you do, in particular to those around you. You know, Keith Lillimo, who, of course, you know well, is one of my closest friends and, and certainly biggest mentors in my career. And I'm curious not only just in regards to Keith, but in regards to your colleagues and your environment in general, how have they been maybe supportive of, of your endeavors? How, how do, they, do you think they, they view what you do um, how does that sort of environment look like for you to allow you to clearly do such far-reaching and, and important, um, you know, work in the building, but also outside of the building? Yeah, no, I mean, Keith and, and, and George, Keith Lillimo and George Relmos are two of my close friends and mentors and advisors throughout my career. And I, owe them a lot among many others at MGA. I am lucky and I'm, I realize I'm lucky in the environment I am where I get um, a lot of the support and, and many of us do. I think the way the way it, it, it works is you gotta, it's like a big jar. You gotta put a lot of effort in it that benefits everybody and every now and then when you are trying to take out of that jar four things that matter to you personally like, you know, Doing a study uh, with hospitals in Beirut might not be the most priority for, you know, a department of trauma at uh, at Mass General. You've already put so much in that jar for your colleagues and everybody, and I certainly do, that you're like, please, you know, you've put so much in the jar. It's time this week for you to take out of it. So, and that's maybe an advice that, you, that, you know, we can give to a lot of, you know, junior attendings starting is you can't take out of the jar before you put a lot of effort in it uh, because, uh, you know, th that's how it works. You're going to take now another time somebody else takes, but everybody got to put in this common jar of serving and, and, and being there when people needed you. Oh, I think that's beautifully said, and that that analogy is uh, is a home run. I've I've never heard it, you know, put in that those sort of words, that sort of terms. I think it's 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 perfect. You know, switching gears a little bit here, you clearly have a strong interest in interoperative uh, adverse events and things essentially that that go sideways in the operating room. I was wondering if you could frame that that interest in in that particular topic you've gone so far as to really discuss a, a classification system and just sort of lead us into that uh that area yes uh yeah my my early career uh, i was fascinated by what i call the black box of the of the operating room it, it seemed to me we focus a lot on post-operative adverse events. We talk about every surgical side infection, every anastomotic leak, every bleeding that happens post-op. But I felt like, you know, some things happen in the operating room that just we keep them in the operating room. So I, I wanted to study that topic and bring it a little bit more to the light. Um, so I my first you know, publication about it uh, was about that classification. Uh, I did like the, uh, I, I'm assuming you're familiar with the with the dendroclavian classification of post-operative adverse event. And I was, I liked it. I had the system thinking about it. So I used, every time I presented M&M, I used to classify my complication. But then I quickly realized, and that's where my interest in, in the classification came, is the clavian dendro classification does not apply to intraoperative adverse event. Without getting too technical, but everything is happening under general anesthesia, so it becomes a 3B um, class for clavian. 
So all intraoperative adverse events were 3B, which did not, in my mind, give enough granularity from a quality point of view, a severity point of view, and how do we benchmark across different hospitals and different surgeons. So that's what I started thinking, okay, well, can, how can we create a classification specifically for the technical intraoperative adverse events? And, uh, and yeah, we, we did the study with an internal, like an inter-rate reliability internal validation, then an external validation on, on, a, on, a, on a set of data, and the external validation worked in terms of you know, does the severity class one, it was class one to class six, and I can quickly go over them. Does class one and two and three, so as you go up on the severity, does that lead to worse outcomes after surgery, everything else being equal? And that's when we created that classification. Um, so, you know, I'll give you examples like class two would be when something just needed some repair uh, with cauterization or small vessel ligation. Class Three is when you had to take a piece of an organ, like small bowel resection or a spleen and a colectomy that you injured. Class four is when you change the whole nature of the procedure. You know, you were listening to music and, you know, you did a common bile duct injury and now you're doing your own wide reconstruction of the, of the, of the biliary system. That's a whole change of the procedure, or you have to leave the patient open because of bleeding and come back. And then class five was a missed injury. So in, in my mind, then like, the worst thing you do is you do the injury and you don't realize you did the injury. Um, and class six was death. And after that, we did quite a few studies. I mean, like I was fascinated with how do we, what are the risk factors for intraoperative adverse events? How does that impact mortality, morbidity after surgery? How does that impact the bottom line of the hospital, the finances of the hospital, everything else being equal? How does the surgeon experience matter? How does the resident experience matter? Does operating at night matter? And then how does it actually impact the surgeons themselves? And that was like one of the, the later studies that we did on the topic. So still fascinated, still very passionate about that, that area of research, really. And I, obviously, we're going to get to the surgeon as a second victim, because I think that was so powerful. And is a, a talk that you gave recently at our Canadian Surgical Forum that I think was just absolutely phenomenal. So we'll, we'll put that on pause for a second. But I, I just wanted to ask, like, how did you actually go about collecting these interoperative adverse events? Because I think that's what, like you said, like the OR is kind of like this black box. It's kind of this nebulous place where sometimes things happen and we don't always necessarily know. And uh, certainly like a lot of our tracking systems don't necessarily capture that very well. So how did you actually go about finding these interoperative events, let alone going on and classifying them? Yeah, that is that is a really good question because it is very difficult. We do not have a good system, uh, at least in North America, uh, you know, in Canada, in the US, and, and the rest of the world to how to do, detect them in a systematic fashion. So we did, we you know, ac across the years, there was several studies on the topic. The initial studies were used, um, I, I, I so my, my methodology strength is really health services research and big databases. So what I did is I took the administrative database that has ICD-9 and ICD, uh, ICD-9 codes and DRGs, but I, that database is not clinically accurate. But then what I did, I, I merged it, if you want, or, or uh, aligned it with the NISQIP database, the National Surgical Quality Improvement Database, that is a very good from a clinical point of view, but it does not collect data about intraoperative adverse event. And the reason I did that is because the, the ICD-9 DRGs, there is something called a patient safety indicator um, called uh, accidental puncture and laceration that the AHRQ had created. It does not look at intraoperative adverse events in specific, but it does look at kind of technical injuries that happen. It's not a very highly accurate screening tool. But what I did by merging those two databases, I was able to screen the NISQIP database for any potential intraoperative adverse event. And then the third step was actually reviewing the intraoperative reports of those, because I looked at the NISQIP in the institution over 10 years. So then when I reviewed, I was able to find those intraoperative adverse events. And now I have a database that is very rich clinically, 
that has intraoperative adverse events and has patients who don't have intraoperative adverse events. And that's how I kind of created the niche. Later on, I did do other studies. For example, one of them was a prospective collection where the poor surgeons at MGH, they would remember it very well because every time they would do a surgery, at the end of the day, they would get an email, whether they think there was an intraoperative adverse event, what was the classification, how did, you know, there was like three or four questions by email. And, and we did that for a good nine months. Um, so, and, and we collected prospective data and published this as well. You, you know, I have thought for a long time that the performance scale and classification that you're, you so eloquently described is is really, really, really helpful to to our our quality endeavors, I think, globally. And I think it's, you know, knowing Clevian and and those guys quite well, I think yours is a is a real highlight on the idea, at least tangentially, of technique and and performance. In one of your publications, you talked about I think it was high 90s percent, 97 percent. I think if I correct me if I'm incorrect, of uh, these adverse events intraoperatively were related to performance. Can you can you frame that for us? How you view that? Because in some ways, the focus on system care and system improvement, although they're certainly aligned conceptually, they are quite different. Yeah. No, uh, Chad. Thank you. This is. Uh... This is a really tough one um, because I, I remember when that study being done uh, and, and I was a collaborator, not, not the main PI, and we had very heated discussions about it because my argument was it's very hard to tease performance. There was two arguments I had. One of them is it's very hard to tease performance from systems. I think that differentiation is a little bit artificial. What do I mean by that? Uh, every system is just designed to deliver the results you know you design it to deliver. You know a, a surgeon that is has m more errors, more intraoperative adverse events than others, as a surgeon that was trained in a certain system, that system has failed them in a certain way. Uh, I mean, there are always the exceptions of, you know, unusual situation where somebody has psychiatric issues. But the point is every surgeon that I know and I've ever met goes to the surgery to do the best surgery they can. So if they're having intraoperative adverse event, we fail them at the training level. We fail them at the competence level. We fail them at what responsibility is put on the shoulders at a certain level. So I, I think I think teasing the two is very difficult. That's one. But at the same time, the other point that, that is really important comes from that, that data and the way I think about it is um, what is the line between supporting uh, a colleague who we know how they feel when something you know goes wrong and accountability? And I also have some strong thought about that. Like people, some sometimes we have these discussions of whether, you know, when we all talk about, you know, how hard it is on surgeons when we injure patients, people think, well, you know, now we can't talk about m and and we never improve. And I actually, my strong thoughts are the following, is the two are go hand in hand. They are supposed to go hand in hand, meaning accountability for performance to go back to the question of performance, accountability of performance is not opposed to supporting somebody and fixing a system. Like you gotta have individual accountability, but at the same time, not make it a personal fight with somebody or a personal vendetta at them. At the same time, you should support them because they are going through emo like a high emotional state because of the complication that happened. And at the same time, there's something in your system that failed to support that surgeon to perform the way you want them to perform. So I think the three are actually hand in hand and they complement each other rather than, you know, we can become we can become too soft if we support our surgeons too much. We just need them to be more resilient. I hope that kind of answers the question. I know I went a little bit tangential on it, but, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's an interesting topic. No, that's a beautiful answer, and, and you know I would certainly align with your view as well. It's uh, it's complicated. Those three domains are distinct, but they're a Venn diagram, and there's significant overlap. And 
you know, it's sort of maybe the follow-up question takes me back to my question about you earlier in terms of your environment and being supportive of the amazing work you do outside of the building. How do you foster an environment, do you think, at the leadership level that allows those three domains to align and move not only individual surgeons forward and you know improve, but also you know your group and the system as a whole. Um, yeah, I, I think to be honest is resident. You got you gotta be yeah you you gotta have the credibility as as a surgeon. Um, no matter how good of a work you can do outside the building, and and that's maybe an advice inadvertently being given to chief residents and fellows and junior attendees. Take the time in early years to build your credibility within your organization, within your hospital. You cannot bypass that step. Build that, have the core. This is going to be your tribe, and I hate to say it this way, but this is like when, when you have that credibility, then you can launch from that credibility to outside facing. So when we did, for example, the, 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 the second victim program before I you know, started talking about it and lecturing about it and publishing about it, the first thing we did is we created the program at MGH. We went through the you know, steps of like, how do, we, how do we get the buy-in of people thinking this is important? To be honest, that wasn't as hard as I thought it's going to be. How do we bring the resources to be able to create the program? How do we keep it meaningful rather than becomes too much fluff and everybody holding hands and singing Kumbaya? So once we, we kind of overcame over these barriers and the program was in action and working and meaningful, this is then when we said, okay, well, we got to get the word out about the program. So I think that's kind of my, my way in general of doing it, whether it's a clinical thing or whether it's a research thing is to first lean on the people, lift them up with me in what I'm trying to do, make a change to what they're doing here before facing outwards. Yeah, it's this whole kind of service leadership type thing that people people talk about in some ways. I mean, we've been dancing around this topic. We got to get into it. What? Tell us a little bit about the surgeon as a second victim. How did you come on to this topic? And uh, what what made you think of doing a study like this? Yeah, no, I'm not exactly. I, I I always say beginning my talks by saying I'm not exactly known at MGH to be the touchy feely guy, and, and like this landing on me is is almost uh, uh, it's an interesting story, as you said. We kind of alluded to it, but I, I'm not known to be touchy feely. You know, I don't think anybody in our division, trauma surgeons, is known to be touchy feely. I'm certainly not the the bold. Uh, you know, rough-looking, bearded Middle Eastern guy is not known to be touchy-feely. But I came to it from from the angle of intraoperative adverse events. Um, you know, I was studying the topic. I was, you know, a hardcore researcher, academician, and and a medical student um, named Kelsey Han. I think she's a chief resident now in Maine. Um, uh, you know, I, she's definitely in Maine, but I think she's, she must be a chief resident now. And Kelsey came to me. She wanted to take a year off from medical school and do research. And she was somehow she read the, you know, the, our product. And she said, I'm interested in this topic. And I said, I'm actually out of ideas. I don't think there's anything else I can study. And I, so I challenged her to come up with an idea and then we can talk. And she came and she said, you know, I've always been focused on the patients, the outcome of the patient, the system. But how about the surgeons? It must impact the surgeons. And what do surgeons think about it? So then we created the BISA study, the Boston Interoperative Surgeons Attitude Study. It was a simple study. It was a survey that we administered to the four Harvard teaching hospitals. So Mass General, Brigham, Beth Israel, and Children's Hospital. An anonymous survey. It was mostly a Likert scale based one to five. Like, what do you think? And it aimed to look not only at the emotional impact of intraoperative adverse event, but how much do they think it happens? Like, what's their perception of the frequency? But also, what's their attitude towards transparency? Like, I actually was more interested in that. I wanted to see how do surgeons feel if somebody is looking in their backyard and looking at intraoperative complications, intraoperative adverse event. So when we did the survey, um, I, I, you know, there was clear from emotional impact was a big deal. 
was a lot of shame, embarrassment, sadness. There was quite a few surgeons who uh, acknowledged that they needed formal psychiatric help for a long time after major complications for the patient. But more importantly, I had left just you know ability to to free text, you know, whatever they want. I thought surgeons always have opinions, so maybe they feel the urge to tell me, like, your survey sucks and this is not how you should do it. So I left the ability. But then what I had is these pages and pages of surgeons spilling their hearts in anonymous fashion about their own complications, how they felt about it, that we need to do something about it. So then we um, presented this at the New England Surgical Society. and. and, and, you know, going back to Chad's point about the support, I got a text from Keith Lillimo during Kelsey's presentation. And it and I was a, still a junior attending back then. And it says, we need to talk. And it scared the hell out of me. It's like, you don't want a text from your chief saying, your chair, you, we need to talk. But to his credit, um, Keith sat with me and he told me a story of his own when he was a resident, which I cannot share with you. But um, it clearly hit home with him in terms of, of what happened. And he said, it's time, you know, we bring this from the research world to do something about this. So he challenged me to do something about it. And that got me on this, you know, road of what can I do about it? And, 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 and you know, I had to research and come up with something to do about it. And that's what got me on the second victim road. I mean, it, it just highlights again, um, what what Dr. Ball has been talking about about the the culture that you create and, and how what an impact that can have, and the fact that you can even do a study like this and that there was such a you know buy-in right like there's a pretty high percent correct me if I'm wrong but I think it was like forty four percent response rate for something like this that's amazing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you know specifically what you found in terms of uh, what what responses people had and in, in particular. Maybe you could share with us some of the comments that that folk, that the surgeons had in the free text. Yeah, so what, what we found, there's about 84% of respondents said they had severe feelings of shame, anxiety, guilt, sadness um, after major intraversion that occurred to their patients. There was about 5 to 10% who sought formal psychological help and psychiatric help after it and they needed some of them needed to take time off after major uh, problems um, for personal healing Um, a lot of them felt they're very lonely in it but they also divulged that their best supporters were peer supporters you know followed by family so that was a surprising to me is people leaned back on on folks and, and 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 colleagues who knows who know how it feels when something bad happens. And there was, like I told you, pages of these comments, uh, you know, on top of my head, the one, a couple that that were there. Uh, I mean, the third theme was people had mistrust in the culture of them getting supported from a quality and safety point of view and M&M point of view. So one of the comments was, we all um, hide our grief and suffer in silence. That was a powerful, I still till today, I've presented this many times, and I always put this quote, I do not know the surgeon who contributed that. And there was one, um, the culture of M&M in one of those four institutions is, uh, um, is very finger-pointing. Uh, even though everybody encounters such events from now and then, there's only um, condemnation and there's no support whatsoever, despite their cl- claims otherwise. So there was clearly a gap being identified that whenever this happens, we fear um, pushed against the wall and cornered rather than people understand what we're going through. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of a, a little bit of a summary of, of what we had. There's there's obviously so many things we could ask you about. I think one of the things that struck me from reading the paper and obviously listening to your talk at CSF was, you know, despite the fact that so many respondents reported having at least one intraoperative adverse event in the last year. Like everybody has one. And in some sense, of course, we all know that if we're surgeons and we're operating, that is going to happen to us. But yeah, there's almost like this psychological disconnect where we can't admit it or don't want to admit it. 
um, and we definitely don't want to talk about it. Can you talk about that? Can you like having done this study, like why do you, do you think it's a culture thing that you know, uh, like we're talking about M and M's? Do you think that we as surgeons just can't admit that we've made these mistakes and we just want to hide it? What What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's a good question. I do not know the answer. I can tell you theories in my head, which are probably completely wrong. But I do think we created over the last century a certain mantra of what it means to be a surgeon. And we created for a good reason, uh, especially when in the early days of surgery. I mean, it took a certain, I, you got to believe in yourself that you can take a human being and that have, especially before the scans, and trust your diagnosis of what they have, put a knife to them, have them bleed and salvage them from the bleeding and resect whatever you need to resect, reconnect what you need to reconnect and expect them to survive. And many did not. So it, it kind of pushed, I think, the early surgeon of the, you know, the 18th, 19th and 20th century to develop a mantra of being tough, being um, under control, being able to deal with anything no matter what. So it created this culture, and I think it was an adaptive at that point. But as medicine and surgery evolved, and we have more specializations, more imaging, more, uh, the culture stayed, but it became maladaptive from a well-being of surgeons' point of view, where you know, it was serving us to, to be able to not fall apart every time something bad, like we misjudge what's going on. But now we knew because like we should be able to get them through the surgery, but still something went wrong. And we're not supposed to acknowledge that it's impacting us. I'm supposed to just move on to the next case and move to the third case and do exactly the same case in the afternoon that I did in the morning that the patient died on the table. So I think it became maladaptive later on where we're all just bottling up this micro stress from one case to the other and it is impacting us. Now, that's one aspect of it. I do think we can, I don't want to take the discussion there, but there's no question the medical legal system and culture in the, in the U.S. in specific uh, probably plays a role. I mean, the first thing you, you get if there is a, a lawsuit in the U.S. is a risk management calling you and telling you, you know, close the, the door on yourself. Do not talk to anybody. You're not supposed, it's, it's the counterculture to, well, I'm I'm actually not a, in a good place. I need to talk to somebody. And the culture is do not talk to anybody. So I think it's a combination of all of these, um, in addition to many others that probably led to this maladaptive culture where, you know, we kind of hide it and, and just, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm all okay. No worries. You know, next, next patient. Let's talk about the next patient. Um, you know, Keith Lillamo charged you with taking this research beyond just here's the problem and kind of tasked you with, with doing something about it. And I think that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like that's what led to this peer mentorship type program that you instituted at, at MGH. Can you tell us a little bit of what, what that program was, how you set it up, and and what impact it had? Yeah, no, the program we started in, in 2017, so it's in sixth year now, and it's very live and well and, and, and growing and very meaningful as part of our culture. But what it is, I think, you know, I had to do a lot of search. I discovered, of course, uh, a lot of people done work in this area, maybe not as much from a surgery point of view, but a lot of people have, um, created a very, very important work. Uh, the, the term of second victim was coined by Albert Wu at Johns Hopkins. He's a, an internist there. And uh, and they've described everything. There's a, a study by uh, an author named Scott, last name Scott, that is the best study to read about the topic. I think it comes from a psychiatry or psychology point of view. It describes the six stages that... Um, clinicians go through when something goes wrong. But so based on all of this literature review, 
we there was like five steps to creation of the peer support program. The first one is is where do you place it in the institution? Where do you place the organization? What's the framework you place it in? And organizationally, we placed it under the QA umbrella, even though we made sure it's not perceived as part of QA. And the reason was to theoretically protect it from medical legal discovery, like all these discussions and support. We don't want them to be used in court because that could just kill the program and, and you know, we can't do it anymore. Then, you know, we, we, we linked it to the regular, the regular support that exists at the unit levels, your, your regular colleagues, the whole way. That's very important. And the employee assist program, which is the professional psychologist, psychiatrist, you have an institution to support your employees. And this was just filling the gap in the middle. So that was the kind of the conceptual framework, if you want. But then, um, you know, after that, we needed to, uh, you know, identify who would be the peer supporters that we need to train. So we need we needed to create a core group, um, which we thought about 10% of the residents and 10% of the attendings. And uh, that would be the group. And we asked, we went to the department who said, who do you go to for support? Who are your the natural kind of people who have tendency to know how to support others? And just names floated to the service. We balanced multiple things, you know, experience, uh, gender, specialty, um, and, and all of this were entered to the equation. Or we chose a core group. Then we created a training program, which the first one we leaned a lot on peer support programs from other specialties, specifically anesthesia that were ahead of us in this game. Uh, and, and later on, you know, we've helped other institutions do their own peer support and surgery uh, as we gained the experience ourselves in the department. And then, you know, the training was, uh, was actually a very, very meaningful training. I was worried, like, how, how do you train about this stuff? You know, they either have it or not. And that's not true. So we went through, like, simulated cases, a surgeon was telling the real case and another surgeon trying to support them. And then we would just all critique that surgeon, what they did well, what they didn't do well, how do they apply the concepts. And it was very meaningful, uh, hands-on and very interactive training. Um, and then, you know, how do you identify these events? And, and to be honest, that was the least important step in what we created because you know, in the end, it's a word of mouth. Uh, you know, you can't screen and make it systematic. It's, once your program is established, the culture is there. When something happens, no matter how big your hospital is, multiple people will text you, will email you about about the the uh, the event that happened. That you know, make sure you reached out to the people involved. They could need some help. And the last one was, you know, what is the actual intervention? And that there's a lot of like again, like I told you, amazing literature on the topic that you can delve into. We're not psychologists, we're not psychiatrists, but. What are the basics of how to support? How do you listen? How do you validate? How do you not jump into trying to help? Uh, how do you not minimize the problem? How do you help them go through the six stages in a healthy way and eventually not only survive and definitely not drop, but actually thrive from the experience? So for every step of those six stages, there's some techniques that we teach GP supporters to do. And then we started doing it. So when there's complication, I, you know, they get an email, they get some resources, and then they get a peer supporter that goes and does a walk with coffee, talks to them, make sure they're okay, see if they need more follow-ups. And if they have real concerns, which happens and happened, we escalated to get them formal support. Um. I want to ask one question about the peers. Like, this is very interesting to me that you um, were, you know, you asked people, like, who would you identify as someone you'd want as a peer supporter? Like, were there any common characteristics about the people that you actually identified to be peer supporters? Um, were they typically more senior folks? Like, uh, like what was what, what seemed to be some commonalities about the peer supporters themselves? It's a good question, Amir. I. I didn't even think about that. I I don't think there was like common objective, if you want, criteria. I mean, there was all genders, all ages, all levels of experience. Um, I think, but now that you're asking the question, I'll, I'll have to think a little bit more about it, but I think maybe the common thing was they tend to be the non-judgmental type. Um, of people, the people who 
who do not summarize you by your failure if if you want i mean but again this is so subjective i but i know these people i know who has chosen and i think that's maybe the common denominator is like from m&m like when they're discussing a very difficult maybe complication they know how to choose their words to get to the bottom of the problem without making it feel personal, without an attack on character. Yeah, there's no question that is a, a very nuanced and uh, a specific skill. And I think some people have it out of the gate and some people have to learn it. And of course, we all know some people never quite get it. Um, but I, I like the way you, you frame that. How do you approach in your program? the surgeon that has an adverse intraoperative event, but is just, whether it's their personality or their psychological makeup or whatever the driver is, is, is sort of introverted and really not great at um, exploring those issues and, and moving forward, maybe like most people have. How do you address that person and how do you then support that particular personality, for example? Yeah, this, this is a challenge, and it's actually pretty common in, in the surgical workforce, if you want. Um, so one important characteristics, if you're ever thinking of creating a program like this in, in, in your institution for a surgical world, this is a key characteristic of the program. It's an opt-out program, not an opt-in program. What do I mean by that? I mean, if I had a, a created a, a hotline and expected surgeons to call me to say, I'm not feeling well, you know, I had a complication today, that phone will never ring. Be exactly for the reason you mentioned, Chad, is a, a lot of us, we have this mantra of invincibility, well, but a lot also are introverts and are not by nature amenable to seek the help when they need it. They don't even recognize they need the help. So an opt-out program, meaning the default is they will get the help. They have to do the extra effort to refuse the help. Almost like the, you know, are you an opt-in country for organ donation or not? Everybody is an organ donation unless you go out of your way to say, I'm not an organ donor. Uh, and I think that makes a big difference for those individuals because it will normalize, well, it's what we do in this department. But then actually that's the opportunity to help them and crack that shell that they have and they actually need it cracked to, to heal in a healthy way. And I can tell you, um, sometimes the people who the people who say I don't need the help scare me less than the people that I get the radio silence when we reach out. Those are the ones that worry me the most. A lot of them could be dwindling in their own thoughts. And that, you know, if I if you don't hear anything from them, that's worse than saying, you know what, I appreciate you sending me you know, the email reaching out, I'm really doing okay, I'm doing okay, you know, for another one, maybe I'll need it, but this one, I'm fine. Those, I'm okay with that, we will respect their choices. But the ones that we emailed the first time, the second time, we book the phone, the call, they don't answer the text message, the call, those are the ones we're going to reach out to them actively and make sure they're doing okay, because some of them might not be doing okay. So, Dr. Caffroni, can you tell us a little bit about, like, so let's say, you know, I'm in my first year of practice, and of course, you know, I've had my uh, complications, and so I, I'm, I, you know, as I'm talking to you, I'm really uh, feeling and and uh, just appreciating how important something like this would be. So, you know, if I come to you and I say, look, you know, I had a patient have an anastomotic leak, and this is what happened. What does what would it look like in the support group? How does how does that interaction go? What does that peer supporter sort of do in that situation? Yeah, um, well, let me twist your question to like a question that I know how to answer is I can tell you where most peer supporters struggle with in those situations. I think most of us surgeons are wired to do something, to jump into action, to help. And that is like one, like it's a, it's counterintuitive for us not to do that. So the one thing your peer will try to do, and we, we try to train them to do that, is to avoid trying to do one or two things. One of them is to say, you know what, 
toughen up, Amir. Anastomotic leaks happen, you know, only if you don't operate, you know, they don't happen. It's okay. It's not a big deal because for you, it is a big deal. So one of them is saying, you know what? You feel bad about it. Yeah, your patient trusted you. You feel you kind of, kind of maybe in your mind, deep in your unconscious, you're thinking about like, should you have taken, should you have, you know, put the Lambert sutures better on that common channel of your uh, staple, you know, you start going through. So for you, it matters and you're clearly distressed by it. So trying to tell you it's not a big deal, that usually doesn't work. That's one. And two is just resisting the urge to jump and want to find a solution. Well, why don't you just, you know, go take a walk, do something that you, there's no solution for stuff like that. You just need to tell them, you know, it sucks. It happens. It's happened to me. I know how you feel and time will heal it. And the best way for you to heal is to be open about it, to think how can you maybe be the voice that will advocate for the things like that not happening again. Not everybody wants to be the, that voice, but some people are like, you know what? Yeah, that's a complication. I acknowledge my mistake. And I'm going to actually carry that banner and teach about it so people don't do the same mistake I did. So it's mostly a lot of listening and validation and and teach also pointing out sometimes some of the maladaptive coping mechanisms. Um, one of the most common maladaptive coping mechanisms that happen that we don't talk about it is the surgeons who start avoiding taking care of patients with similar problems like the one they had a complication with. And unfortunately, I think that's a much, much bigger problem. Uh, it's the surgeon who started doing, you know, the big whipples and slowly went into just doing the lap holies and then went into become, you know, it's like they changed their practice pattern or they sent too many patients to GI to do, you know, stents and too many patients to IR to put uh, embolizations. So these kind of patterns of practice, uh, I think they're one of the most, they go unappreciated coping mechanisms. So pointing them out to your peer would be good. Maybe not at the initial stage, but later on, like how to encourage them to not develop these practice patterns that will harm the patients, but also will harm their careers. And so much of what we're talking about is almost like you know, psychologically, how do you overcome or adapt to something that's really very difficult to deal with? I mean, I can tell you um, from this year of being my first year of practice, having a, you know, your first major complication, it's devastating. You want to go crawl into your bed. Not only do you not want to operate, you just you want to leave the hospital and never come back. And you, it's the opposite of what happens. You actually have to go and see that patient every day while yeah. they're in the hospital recovering from the complication that you had. Um, so like how many, do you, how many folks do you actually needed from the program actually needed to have formal psychological counseling? How, how many people were able, were like just devastated to the point where they couldn't continue? And what would you do for folks who felt like devastated? You know, I don't, thankfully I feel like, you know, I got over that feeling, but, uh, you could definitely imagine scenarios where you just don't feel like going on or or taking another crack at the can. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the way you put it. I mean, you, you you put it in really really good words about how people feel after it. You want to crawl. You just don't want to come back to the hospital. And and every time you're uh, you're seeing that patient in the morning, you know your guts tell you I should avoid that room. But, you know, you kind of get yourself to not avoid that room and actually spend more time with that patient, even though it's painful for you to see your complications face to face every day. Um, I, so I I love the way you put it. I think those, those exactly mirror my feelings, too, as well. Um, I think about three percent, maybe about five percent of the interventions we did over the last six years ended up. Um, we ended up escalating it to get more professional help. Um, and we do have at MGH uh, an employee assist program with a formal psychiatrist, physician psychiatrist. And, you know, I 
you know, get them involved. Sometimes you, the, the leadership of that person get them involved and go, you know what, it's been rough on them. I think, you know, they need to take some, you know, a week or two off and hook them up and have several sessions with them. And typically what I do, I just, or the role, what we train the peer supporters is like recognize some flags to which they should bring it to the attention of, you know, either myself or the leadership of that specific surgeon. And then we leave it from there what to do. And then, you know, getting EAP involved. Um, that's um, one. Have we had to, have we had the situations where something bad happens in the OR and the, that surgeon has more cases lined up during the rest of the day? And uh, yes, it's it's almost like, it's almost guaranteed they have other things to do during the day. And for for many of them, they're okay. We, 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 like they can carry on. Um, but for, for quite a few cases, it was clear that the right thing to do for the next patient and for the surgeon is to cancel the next case. Or in cases of group practices, somebody else does the case, which is rare, but occasionally it's doable. Uh, if it's not, um, you know, there's no surgeon-patient relationship yet because it's an emergency that came through through the the emergency room. But yes, we've we've had bad complications where there was no way. I mean, it was so evident. Like I thought it'd be a difficult thing to say, let's cancel the next cases, but it was like clearly the anesthesiologist wanted to cancel the next case, the surgeon wanted to cancel the next case, I wanted to cancel the next case, the nurse. I mean, everybody wanted. It was like a devastating death in the OR unexpected death in your in an elective case like just nobody is in the right mindset to just carry on with the next patient uh, i mean you could change perhaps the anesthesia team you can change perhaps the nursing teams but you can't just bring a new surgeon that that patient has not met and say and and to be honest patients take it very well for the very few incidents we had to do it when we walked and we were transparent, we said, you know, there was a pretty bad outcome that happened in the case before you. I think it's better if we reschedule the surgery in a day that, you know, your your entire team is feeling better. And the patients was like, yeah, absolutely. I want them to be on their best behavior when they're doing my surgery. So I'm good. Yeah, we reschedule, no problem. So we haven't had issues from a patient point of view on that. I think it's so incredible that you have such buy-in from everyone in the program that they would trust you, right? Like that's such, it's such a big deal um, for a surgeon to say, yeah, I, I'm going to cancel my case. Like I think very few people on maybe outside of surgery really understand what like a, a personal thing that is to say, I'm going to cancel the next case because I don't think I'm fit to carry on, right? Like that's such a big deal. And the fact that you have such ownership and buy-in from everyone in the program to trust you, to, that if you're making that decision, and as a, as a program, that that's the right thing to do. So, you know, I, I am just uh, astounded by that. And so my question to you then is, if someone wants to build a program like this at their own institution, what advice do you have to do something like this at your own institution? How do you go about building something like this? Particularly, I'm thinking about a program that's a, maybe not as big as MGH, but a smaller program with fewer surgeons. How, what does that look like in terms of building a peer support program? Yeah, very good question. Uh, the, the publication in JAKS, the Journal of the American Culture of Surgeons, we really uh, went out of our way to delineate it in details everything we did. And I think it's a very good place to start, how to do it step by step. The one step, if you're a totally new program that you'll need help with just the first time, is to train your first wave of peer supporters. And after it, you might be able to just do your training to, to your group yourself. But that I would, I would, you know, asks, you know, people who have done it before to come, whether it's our group or whether it's there's other programs. And a lot of them are not surgery specific, but they can still do the training. It's it's uh, it crosses disciplines if you want. And then uh, I think I stress that there are two important points to keep in mind whenever you do the program is one. Um, it I think it has to be surgery specific 
Um, there are a lot of peer support programs in the country, but they're kind of like hospital-based or much wider in scope. I think the meaningfulness of the program really matters. Um, and, and I do not know how to support a psychiatrist who saw a patient, thought they're fine, and 24 hours later, that patient committed suicide. I don't know how it feels. I, I've never been in that situation. The same way a pathologist might have a hard time understanding what it means when you're listening to music in the room, everybody's chatting, it's good, and your last snip of scissors opens the gates of hell, and now you're putting uh, sponge sticks on the IVC, and like blood is coming to the room, four anesthesiologists are coming, music is off. Like that feeling in that moment is very hard for a pathologist to appreciate. So I think, you know, where do you draw the line is, I don't know, can an interventional radiologist support a surgeon? Can an OBGYN support a surgeon? Can a surgeon support a, an interventional cardiologist? I think that remains to be determined. But the point is, I think there's something special about injuring somebody physically, um, that, that it feels like criminality to a certain extent, that I think it, if you make it non-surgery specific, you lose that meaningfulness. The second one is the, we talked about it briefly, is the opt-out. I think you should make it an opt-out, meaning you normalize uh, receiving help and you you make the, un, the abnormal thing is to refuse it. I think that matters a lot. And the third thing, the characteristic, that's the advice I give is, you know, you're not aiming for perfection uh, in terms of, I want to reach out to everything that happened because it's a fine balance between reaching out for things that people need help and reaching out for everything. And then people will just get fatigue from that. So I'm very selective in what we reach out to. A surgical side infection, no matter how bad it is, is something I rarely reach out for. Um, what I reached out to in a PGY-1 is very different than what I reached out to with somebody with 30 years of attending experience. So there's a lot of judgment that goes in it. So between those three areas, this is like the three things that kind of, the three legs of that stool to maintain the program meaningful and, and, and useful. You know, this has been honestly one of my favorite conversations we've had in doing almost 200 of these podcasts. The, content of what you've talked about today with us so kindly is so critically important to all of us in, in our role as, as surgeons and as leaders. You're an amazing guy and your experience is, is really unmatched. So Amir and I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us. Thank you. One of the questions we ask everybody on the way out the door, so to speak, um, is 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 typical and it's become a sort of a closer on the podcast and we're hoping that you'll be willing to answer that if you could go back into your into your lifetime as either maybe a resident a trainee or maybe a, a junior early attending what advice would you give yourself at that time that maybe uh, you think about now well, well let me first say thank you for your kind words. I mean, I, I am very appreciative of you reaching out to me and having this conversation. I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, hopefully you enjoyed it half as much as as, as I did. Um, now to, to your question, what advice I would do or not do? Yeah, I mean, the, the one advice I would give is occasionally when you're early on in your training, you're early on uh, in your career as a surgeon, there's a lot of dust and a lot of noise. You know, there's a lot of demands on your time, whether it's, you know, mm -hmm. career-wise, family-wise, um, uh, clinical. I mean, there's a lot of demands on the surgeon in the, you know, when they're training in the early years. And I always say, whenever there's so much fog, take care of the patient. The patient, think of every patient as if they're all your, they're your own family member, and you will never go wrong with that compass. What I mean by that is, you know, in a busy trauma place where you have, you know, 30 admissions overnight, it's very easy, no matter how good of a person you are, to forget, like, 
For you, it's another appendicitis or it's another car crash. For that person today in your emergency room, that's like a life-changing event. So it takes a conscious effort to not fall into it. You know, this is just bread and butter of what we do every day, every day, every day. Just teach yourself how to always remember the human behind the person that you're taking care of, and you will always make the right decisions for them. Uh, That's it. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. This episode was produced and edited by Kirsten Allen, one of our new team members on the Cold Steel team and a medical student at Queen's University. If you have comments or questions, please email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.